Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 90, Computerwelt, telling a bit about how computers created another revolution in chemistry research by the 1980s. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. Computers, of course, are ubiquitous in chemistry now as in the rest of human civilization. But it wasn't always that way, and many chemists were wary of them when they were developed in the middle of the 20th century. We heard many episodes ago about the first use of electronic computers to calculate molecular structures of small biochemical molecules in the 1950s. And as computer memory and speed grew, such calculations expanded in scope and popularity. To be fair, there was automation in some laboratory instruments dating as far back as 1875 which is when the first report by Dr. Thaddeus Stevens described how to carefully drip water through filter paper in a controlled manner to wash the material collected on the paper. We call the material on the paper the filtrate, the stuff the filter paper collected after a reaction. There were some improvements over the next half century to this scheme. By 1894, E.R. Squibb invented a so-called automatic zero burette designed to use a siphoning scheme to control the levels of different liquids. The early 1900s included the invention of an automatic coal crusher which ground up samples of coal so chemists could analyze them. In 1922, DuPont employees G.B. Taylor and S. Hugh invented an automatic carbon monoxide measuring and recording device, which changed electrical conductivity when gas bubbled through a solution. We've talked a bit about the electronics revolution in the mid-20th century already. One interesting electronic instrument from 1929 was an automatic titrator independently invented at New York University and Eastman Kodak, using a photocell to detect a color change as you exactly neutralized an alkali with an indicator dye in solution. There was even the first time a computer was used to automatically control a process, in 1948, by the Reeves Instrument Corporation, and used an analog computer a digital computer to run a mass spectrometer that could, quote, complete molecular analysis of a 20-component hydrocarbon mixture in 10 minutes and type out the results on a paper tape, unquote, was described by the Atlantic Refining Company in 1952. But still, Even after their invention in the 1940s, 
Electronic computers stayed in carefully tended computer rooms, usually a climate-controlled basement, while chemistry laboratories could be set up in a variety of places, as long as some appropriate ventilation was available. Computers were separate from labs. The computer office allocated carefully amounts of time to running programs from a variety of departments. Whether payroll, statistics, physics, or chemistry, and the cost could be around 100 U.S. dollars per hour in 1960, or over 1,000 dollars per hour now. That began to change with the invention of the laboratory instrument computer, or LINC, L-I-N-C, in the early 1960s. Wesley Clark at MIT's Lincoln Laboratory decided that quote, a computer should be just another piece of lab equipment unquote, and began to design a smaller computer with the following criteria: one, easy to program; two, easy to talk to while running; three, easy to maintain; four. Directly able to process lab signals. Five, cost no more than twenty-five thousand dollars. Six, short enough for people to see over it. By 1962, he began building such a machine, punning on the name Lincoln Laboratory, and that it would be a simple link to the operator. A new addition was a highly reliable and small magnetic tape drive for memory. The real innovation here in technology was a small tape reel that would fit into a user's pocket to take with him. Essentially, the link was, as Gordon Bell of the Computer Museum put it, quote, "the world's first personal computer." Unquote. By 1964, the link was working, set up in about a dozen laboratories, yet it didn't quite meet the under $25,000 goal. The computer influenced many later companies, including Digital Equipment Corporation or DEC, such as their system modules, as well as the PDP-4 and PDP-5, and eventually the PDP-8. Improvements in integrated circuitry through the 1970s resulted in a spate of desktop computers and companies, and this is where we are in the 1980s. From early crystal structure calculations, chemical programming also was on the rise. In 1953, the use of the statistical Monte Carlo method began, which uses repeated random sampling to calculate results in physical chemistry problems. 1955 saw the initial use of what's called ab initio calculations. To determine quantum mechanical properties of a nitrogen molecule (N2), two things to note here: two atoms of nitrogen is a large system because there are two nuclei plus seven electrons in each nitrogen, or 16 total particles. It is impossible to solve equations exactly for more than two particles, so you must approximate things for more than that. Ab initio, 
is Latin for from the beginning, and you use only known equations and physical constants in your calculations. By 1961, the first calculations on cyclohexanes conformations, that is, boat versus chair, and their relative stability were performed. In 1965, a semi-empirical calculation was discussed, that is, CNDO, or Complete Neglect of Differential Overlap. Here we approximate the inner electron shells of atoms and only deal directly with the outer valence electrons in order to simplify and speed up results to understand molecules. A year later, Cyrus Leventhal reported on using computer graphics to visualize molecules on a computer monitor. James Hendrickson, in 1971, discussed mathematical representations of organic molecules so that computers can help understand organic reactions. By 1977, Martin Karplus used computers to simulate molecular dynamics of a protein, that is, how the amino acid chain likely shifts around in a protein over time, and he discovered that there is some fluid character in a protein's interior. In 1982, an algorithm on how small molecules attach to receptors in biological molecules was published. So, as computers gained power, speed, and ease of use by the 1980s, many chemists were running simulations of molecules on their computers to see how well their understanding matches the data. A nice paper from 1988 by George Levy describes the changes going on in the chemistry community based on computers. He noted two trends in computer hardware appearing in chemistry research. One, supercomputers to run large chemical calculations such as molecular dynamics and complicated quantum calculations of molecular properties. Two, personal workstation computers with the ability to generate high-quality images of the molecules and how their reactions occur. He also discussed the ability of computers to network over some national computer networks such as ARPANET, NICERNET, and this allowed researchers to tap into other computers to run programs. In terms of software, besides many ways of simplifying literally impossible direct quantum calculations, a valuable algorithm was discovered. Here I refer to the Cooley-Tukey Fast Fourier Transform Algorithm. So that phrase has a lot of buzzwords, and let's see what's going on. James Cooley and John Tukey were American mathematicians, and their work was initially based on a Cold War problem. How to verify nuclear explosions using seismometers placed in the ground in countries encircling the Soviet Union. You can figure out using a Fourier transform calculation from the various sensors where the explosion is, but the calculation is really complicated 
and takes a long time. This isn't good enough for near real-time verification. Cooley and Tukey published a paper in 1965 using a method that takes the digitized version of the data and breaks the data up into smaller digital transforms to run the calculation faster. They tested it, and it was able to localize explosions to within 15 kilometers of the explosion sites. Funnily enough, they didn't really invent the algorithm. They rediscovered Carl Gauss's method from 1805 that didn't have much use at the beginning of the 19th century, except for calculating asteroid orbits. But we are talking about chemistry and not nuclear bombs here. So where does this lead us? To digital signal processing of any spectrum, including spectra taken with a spectrometer, as A. Zakor realized a year later in the Journal of the Optical Society of America, you can take an optical digital scan of your sample over time, often using a laser, and convert it to frequency of light, and use the fast Fourier transform. Abbreviated as FFT, to do this really fast with little noise in the data. The whole shebang merges spectroscopy with lasers plus computer calculations using the algorithm to give chemists a nice clean spectrum of their samples. None of this was possible before the 1960s because there was no good electronic computer, no laser, and no Cooley-Tukey algorithm. Block Engineering patented this idea in 1966, and the first commercial FFT infrared spectrometer was sold by Digilab in 1969, the FTS-14. It was the size of a couple of living room sideboards. Nuclear magnetic resonance Fourier transform spectrometers also appeared around this time as an accessory. In 1968, for Varian's HA100, and a fully independent Fourier transform NMR machine by Bruker, the WH90, in 1969. With the introduction of Fourier transform methods, Moffat, Kaupinen, and Munch in 1991 argued that, from 1975 to 1985, the data quality of the spectra. Increased by a thousand in terms of better signal versus noise in the data, better resolution, the ability to see multiple narrow peaks, and digital recording of data rather than manual digitization from drawn spectra. With the advent of true microcomputers in the 1970s, though, is when benchtop computerized instruments like the existing analog spectrometers. Became possible. No more cabinet-sized instruments like the FTS-14 were necessary. Beyond Fourier transform spectrometers, computers have aided immensely in the laboratory in electrochemistry. For example. Electrochemists apply certain electronic waves, such as square waves, to electrochemical cells, and derive how an electrochemical reaction proceeds. 
computers around this time were found to be most useful in generating these shaped voltage pulses and recording signals for analysis. The idea is that you generate an electrical pulse and record how the sample responds. From the electrical response, you can get an idea of the oxidation or reduction reaction and the kinds of thin layers of reactants and products on the active surface. For a couple of years in the early 1990s, I did precisely this sort of research as a postdoctoral associate with Lehigh University, working at the now defunct Naval Air Warfare Center in Warminster, Pennsylvania. The goal was to find easy to apply, environmentally less toxic, and lightweight protective coatings for the U.S. Navy's aircraft made of aluminum. Such aircraft sitting out on marine based aircraft carriers corrode in the salt laden sea air. Naturally, aluminum metal does grow a very thin oxide layer, which partially protects the metal, but that's not good enough for a really nasty environment like the ocean. One of the ways to test for protectiveness was to coat sample rectangles of the aluminum alloy with a thin layer of protective oxide grown electrically by pushing high current through a particular bath containing the panels, and then electrochemically test them with these computer driven electrical pulses. With the measured electrical response, you can model how the protective layer probably contains insulating oxide, micropores in that oxide of various sizes that let corrosive compounds through, and other oddments of microstructure, which you electrically model using macroscopic electronic components like resistors, capacitors, and inductors. The precise technique I used was electrochemical impedance spectroscopy, which was performed with microcomputer controlled instruments. You can find on the internet the final report in 1995 I co authored. NAWCADWAR 95023 043, a comparison of thin film sulfuric acid and chromic acid anodizing processes. A second paper from 1995 I authored was published in the journal Corrosion called Review Replacements for Chromium Pretreatments on Aluminum. Computers also found use in analytical chemistry. We've heard about the NASA method of iodine determination for purifying water back in the 1970s, and this was extended to all sorts of ions and pH indicators to be analyzed by the 1980s, whether by photometry or electrical signals. Even computerized techniques in chromatography began to be published by the 1980s. An actual robot run by computer programming was invented in 1984 by chemistry professor Daniel Massero and his graduate student Brian McGratton, which they demonstrated that year at the Eastern Analytical Symposium. The robotic arm grasped and moved laboratory glassware. This was the point in which a microprocessor was no longer tied down to a specific instrument and could become multifunctional. 
What scientists found was that computers made it easy to set up reproducibly all sorts of laboratory tasks that would be rather tedious for people to perform. Computers could record the data in a reliable digital form. They could run the experiment, and they could do the basic calculations and perform automatic corrections on the data. This is why I decided on the name for this episode, based on the prescient 1981 song, which means "Computer World" by the German electronic band Kraftwerk. We are not at the point in our chemical history where artificial intelligence or AI became important in the laboratory, which will be a couple of decades in the future. Levy in 1988 noted that AI would be a development in the future when he said, quote, "Chemists think of artificial intelligence (AI) in terms of expert systems being designed to elucidate molecular structures." From spectroscopic or other data, unquote. In other words, AI was already on chemists' minds back in the 1980s, but AI's development wasn't ready for prime time yet. In our next episode, we turn to new understanding and problems in atmospheric environmental chemistry in the 1980s. Until then, brave the elements. Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast.